0: Welcome to the Calibre Podcast, brought to you by the Watches of Switzerland Group. In this episode, David Lindsay, VIP Sales Director, meets with Ken Gesler, watch journalist, historian, and serious watch collector. The pair explore watches through the different decades, understanding which pieces were most significant or influenced by the eras, beginning with the 1930s through to the current day. Hello, my name is David Lindsay and uh, we're talking to you here from Watches of Switzerland in our flagship showroom uh, on Regent Street. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Ken Kessler. Ken is a watch uh, journalist, a historian and a serious watch collector. Absolutely. And we're going to be talking about watches through the different decades and the most significant watches which kind of meant something um, during those particular years and so uh, We're gonna start off in the 1930s. We've got two watches on the tray here. Um, First of all, welcome Ken. Good to be here. Thank you for coming for Two Watches Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've got a Patek Calatrava and a Jaeger Reverso.
1: Do you wanna start? Well, these are very, no pun intended, very timely because the 30s was the first decade where wristwatches outsold pocket watches. They were born in the 1910s in World War I, 1920s is when they started to explode. And these represent two different aspects of watch ownership. The Patek, which is still in production, is the classic dress watch, and this is the Calatrava. This particular one is indistinguishable from the first one that came out, but it's actually 1956. And if we put it next to the ones in the store, the only difference would be the size.
0: The very first Calatrava in nineteen thirty one was the reference ninety-six, wasn't it? Which and that necessary. was a that was a the size that was a thirty-one millimeter case That's size. Right. So it's a bit like putting a one pence piece on your wrist mm. with a leather strap on it. So it just goes to show how I mean the, I think it's about thirty-eight, thirty-nine mil now is the kind of uh, uh, you know the the, the size mm. of, a, of a Calatrava. Um, some of the some of the models coming up to forty. Uh, the newer six one one nines. So um, so you can see how the sizes have increased over those years. Because this is, I
1: believe, thirty three. Okay. And I, I only wear this one on special occasions because it is a very formal watch, and also with its age, I, I just don't want to damage it. And as you can see, it's in excellent condition. But if I were to buy a new Calatrava, it would look more right by today's measures. So, yeah. this was probably considered a big watch at the in time. the 30s. Yes. Uh, this is now considered just below the median. You know better than I what is the most popular size, but I think today it's 39?
0: Yes, it will be. And the, and the good thing I'm, I'm finding out at the moment is there's a little bit of a renaissance with the Calatrava mm. because. You know we all know that it, it, um, I don't want to go off tangent here yeah. but, you know the last few years have been Nautilus and aquanaut substantially in terms of the demand, but more and more people now learning about the brand, they're understanding the DNA of, of Patek Philippe and when the Stearns took over the company in the early 30s and this was their, this was their first line so I think in terms of a significant watch of the 30s, you know this one stands out uh,
1: significantly Well, the other element with the Calatrava. Everyone who's into watches knows the famous tagline from Patek Philippe, you never actually own a Patek Philippe, you maintain it for the next generation. This watch has not changed in its style, well this particular model, because there's now a Calatrava family with multiple time zones and military look. If you're a conservative watch buyer, small c conservative that is, with refined tastes and don't want a watch that could be subject to fashion, that's literally timeless. The Calatrava is is just the go-to piece if you want a definitive dress watch that will always serve you well and the next generation. Okay. That, that ad was really on point. Yeah, this okay. is the the other extreme. Yes.
0: So going from uh, the round watch to the uh, square watch, which we have here today, which is the uh, Jaeger-LeCoultre Reverso. So. Um, Legend has it, according to the uh, jaeger lecoultre website anyway, and this is what I've been telling customers for God knows how many years, so I hope it's true. But there was a gentleman called César de Trey who was, uh, um, he was commissioned by the British Army who were playing, over, playing polo over in India, right. back in the early 1930s, that they wanted a watch which wouldn't break when, they, when the ball hit the watch when they were playing polo. He commissioned Jaeger-Lakutra to come up with making um, something which would withstand Mm. the ball impacting upon the back of the watch. And thus the Jaeger-LeCoutre Reverso was born. What they used to do back in that day as well, they would engrave um, Mm. a crest on the back of the the case back as well. Uh, But the main thing around this was effectively to withstand the pressure of the ball hitting
1: the uh, in the watch so uh, yes like the Calatrava the reason why this has survived all those years with both of these watches I don't think there was a single period where they weren't in production there may have been lulls but this transcended the whole polo playing or sport element and became a definitive dress watch if you wanted a rectangular piece or a square piece And and it became, funnily enough, it became a canvas for personal tastes. In addition to the original, say, Family Crest or initials, eventually, people started putting miniature paintings on the back. They would get lacquered, and I believe Giger still has- Yes, they do. A division. Well, I remember at one of the shows, my all-time favorite painting is Girl in a Bugatti by Lempicka. It's a famous picture of a flapper in a green sports car. Okay. and i have never wanted to watch so More much in that. my yeah, life yeah. and there's been a number of phenomenal um, versions uh sorry paintings on the back of these but this watch uh i think the biggest impetus in its revival over the last few years and you'll know david better than i which year they returned the ones that looked almost exactly like the first year and they did them in blue uh, yeah burgundy. So the tributes the tributes yes absolutely got the yeah, most attention. beautiful green burgundy, bloom. beautiful watches. And if you show them to someone and tell them that this watch is visually unchanged since the 1930s, they think you're mad. But the people who designed these, I don't know what the magic was, but it's like they were immune to fashion and they just went for purity. And it's, it's astonishing when you see these next to the originals and there's just... Aside from dimensions and perhaps movements, they're they're interchangeable. Yeah. And this is one of the great, one of the all-time great dress watches. And the other thing about this is, you can wear it with f- formal clothing or jeans and a white shirt or anything you like. And the colors are just irresistible. I've always said, actually, when I'm
0: when I'm showing a customer a Jaeger Reverso, um, I mean, this is quite a subjective uh, uh, observation, mm-hmm. but I mean in the history of watchmaking, if you were to pick out five models which, which, um, you know, which stood out. Mm. I
1: personally, I'd have a Reverso in mm. there in a, in amongst that five. Well, it'd be hard to argue either of these. Both yeah. would be in any any. Defendants. Funnily enough, I
0: was reading something about... Um, in 1932, Jaeger sent uh, Patek eight models of the Reverso, four in yellow gold, four in white gold. Right. And at that time, because this watch came out as a two-hander in 1931, mm. and it became a. It had it had an offset second style in mm. 1934, but before that, in 1932, eight models went, eight cases went over to Patek, and Patek developed their own movement within it, uh, which did have an offset second hand mm. on it. Mm. I remember seeing one of the examples in the Patek Museum when I went round there, and I thought know which one came first but obviously <laughs> yeah. after reading that it yeah. most definitely was Jaeger who who created it but uh, that's the reason why you'll see that in the uh, in the Patek museum but yeah two fine examples right onto the 1940s and Kent your um, another a- area of uh, expertise from your good self we've got two watches here we've got the Radimir panerai and we have the IWC pilot so
1: Well, these, these mean a lot to me because when I first started out in watches, the first ever vintage piece I bought was a British military watch from a company called Vertex. And it was one of what's now known as the dirty dozen. Now, the reason they're emblematic of the forties is that for the first five years of that decade, the Swiss watch industry, the American watch industry, they were focused on one thing and that was wartime. Now, What that did for the watches was it elevated things like uh, functionality, chronographs uh, improved, legibility improved because pilots needed to see the watches, durability improved because an infantryman out in combat needed a rugged watch. Uh, Things like the luminosity changed, uh, water resistance, absolutely every practical aspect of watchmaking improved. The thing that fell by the wayside pretty much was the civilian watch. So there really are no incredible standouts from the 1940s to match say the Calatrava that we just looked at. What we have here are two of the most important, the children of two of the most important watches of them all. Starting with this, this is a Panerai Radiomir. And although it was designed in the tail end of the 1930s, for the Italian Navy, it didn't really come into usage until the war hit. And th- because it was the Axis powers rather than the Allies, the two navies or the, uh, that got use of this was first and foremost the Italians, and it was used by the saboteurs, and uh, the German Navy used it as well for the same purposes until the Italians came over to the other side. What this was, was an exercise in creating a waterproof watch, which was still a big deal in the 40s. Although companies like uh, Rolex in the 20s had come out with what I believe was the original Oyster, and Amiga produced a a watch with two cases in the 30s, they were still flawed. At uh, Rolex, not so much, but this really represented a major leap because it had a screw-down crown and Rolex was actually involved with this. It was a Rolex-based movement, wasn't it was it? It was a Rolex-based movement supplied by Corte Bear, which was improved by Rolex and supplied to Panerai. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Panerai wasn't a watch company. It was a retailer and a supplier of materiel to the military. It was like uh, the surplus stores in the United States in the 50s. It supplied Scuba, uh, not scuba gear so much as early diving equipment, Uh, bullhorns, the amazing stuff that said Panerai. This particular model uh, was the first because it's also well known for the notorious clip that holds down the crown. This is a screw down crown as opposed to a pressure device. But if you look at a watch like this and you can imagine, you're in combat, you're underwater, you're setting charges you don't get higher visibility than this the amusing thing about it and why i'm holding one is that panerai was very prescient in the early 1990s when watch collecting was exploding and military watches were still affordable the only people that knew about panerai were hardcore rolex collectors and hardcore militaria collectors and the company was still private before it was purchased by what later became Richemont, issued a very limited series of two or three models. And which it, you have, which... Uh, one you have, have, my <laughs> son's already after those. Yes, I'm lucky enough to have three of the models before uh, Richemont uh, took over and turned it into the global success we know it to be. But the miracle for them, which is completely unplanned, is Sylvester Stallone fall, falling in love with them. Yes, gifting I one as well to Arnie Schwarzenegger, yes. and both of them featured them in films. Yeah, and when that happened, boom. Yeah, you know better
0: than I. How did the sales go after that? Ridiculous in the mid '90s. Like you know, I think it ran, ran around the Vertical. '90s, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was boom time for Panerai at that
1: time. For sure. Well, now they're a major brand. For sure. Absolutely a major brand.
0: But and the other this, one we have here?
1: This is, is even closer to my heart because, as I said, my first piece was one of the Dirty Dozen. Now, this is a definitive pilot's watch, whereas the Dirty Dozen were infantry watches. But the thing that was common to both, white Arabic numerals, a triangle at the 12th so that you know that the watch is right side up, an impermeable case, and in fact, the actual name of the Dirty Dozen was WWW for uh, Water Wrist Water Resistant, whatever. Okay. I, I'm having a lapse at this at the moment, but it was uh, British MOD, the Ministry of Defence, commissioned at the tail end of the war. Watches for the infantry. Now they weren't actually delivered, I think, until right after the war ended. But around the same time, IWC was one of the 12. IWC's watch stood out and that it also has been adopted by IWC enthusiasts as the Mark 10. And the difference between that and this is it had a small seconds instead of sweep. But this is part of a noble series which I've just been informed by your good self is coming out as the Mark 20. Correct. Which means that this particular model has been around for nearly 80 years. And for anyone who wants a a pilot's style watch, this is about as good as they get. This issues all of the matters of chronographs and multiple colors on the dial and, and case materials. This is as honest a military watch as you can buy without actually signing up. And it's, it's that nice size where we were d- discussing with the previous decade, that size has gone up and down. Uh, at one point there were watches on the market of 55 millimeter which only worked on say Schwarzenegger's wrist. They look like little clocks rather than big watches. This is comfortable in every way and what the uh, earlier version didn't have is a really nice flexible bracelet. They were all issued with leather or canvas straps. I suppose part of the reason would be that if you're in night maneuvers, this would reflect. Yeah. Whereas a matte black or a, any canvas strap wouldn't reflect light. But this, this is buying heritage. And uh, these are two of my favorite watches out of the hundred or so that I have. Very impressive.
0: Right, that's a 1940s wrapped up beautifully by Ken. And we move um, effortlessly into the 1950s. Another era that you're um, well, It's, very familiar it, it's with.
1: important to me because I was born in 1952, same as, I believe, the Navitimer, the early days of the Rolex Explorer, the Bentley Continental, So and mm-hmm. me. So, mm-hmm. 52 is an important year, and also a year later, this particular watch, and three years later, this watch. Mm-hmm. What the 50s represented, is that marvelous segue between wartime tool watches and the return of peacetime. So what we have here are still tool watches because the dress watches of that era don't stand out quite as much. Yes, there was the Amiga Constellation, I believe was late 50s, but these represented the, the segue because the Breitlings, for example, were also used by civilian pilots. I'm certain the 50 Fathoms was used by civilian divers. And the Conquest started out as a dress watch that you would have seen on officers or well-to-do individuals. But starting with this, the, the Navitimer, this is a perfect example of showing how watches evolve. This one is 1964, I believe, a very early one, and it says, AOPA on the dial, which is the pilot's association that worked with Breitling in the 50s to design it. This is a current model. And as you can see, it's a classic illustration of how size has changed. Mm-hmm. What this was known for, and you're going to have to explain this because I still haven't figured it out despite owning one. You're
0: not going to ask me to Is be it had slide rule, a circular slide? Yes, it had a circular
1: slide rule. Yes, I
0: know. That's the... the uh that will be for another event when I oh, okay. sit down and, and go through. But I mean with regards to, with, I think it was, is yours the 806? Is, was it is yeah. the 806 uh, calibre that they were moved, using 1964 as well? There you are. There we go. Very, very good, show.
1: very well done.
0: Um, so I think it was Willie Breitling who was commissioned by the American uh, Pilots yes, Association. A- wasn't A- it? Yes. Um, and I believe the uh, the only uh, at first they they didn't have any branding or any logo mm. on them, did they? And the little dots around the edges. I think in mm. the nineteen fifties models they had hundred and twenty five dots. Yeah, R- grains of rice, I think they called okay. them. Okay. And then in the nineteen sixties, I think they put less on there. They put like ninety three or something. Mm. So that's, an, well, that's another way of identifying. Yeah. All the collectors
1: can identify them. Apparently, it was reissued as a very limited edition for the anniversary, but I believe. That. Yes. Okay. It's one of those things where one of the important uh, fashions in collecting now are limited editions that are targeted at specific groups. So targeting AOPA members who don't own an original. Okay. Uh, it's a, a similar situation with the Fifty Fathoms. This mm-hmm. is a watch that was actually dormant for years. The guy who was in
0: charge of Blumpan between 1950 and 1980 Jean-Jacques Fichte, he was a diver himself. Mm. A couple of French divers Mm. after the the Second World War were looking to develop an elite group of divers Mm. and they wanted to commission a watch specifically um, for their diving group and at that time there wasn't much take up Mm. from many of the brands with with what they requested as to be
1: part of the remit of making the watch. It's it's, uh, again indicative of how I guess coincidence isn't quite the right word, because at the same time, a number of other companies were working on advanced diving watches. Again, going back to the work that was done in the 40s, because this came out around the same time, some say before, some say after, the Rolex Submariner, which is another crucial. Yes. But the Submariner was, I believe, designed originally for civilian use and eventually adopted by... Military use, whereas this was designed initially specifically for, for the French Navy. Yes, and uh, I, this is one of my bucket list watches, it's one of the two or three that have escaped me in my years of collecting because it's a, it as you say, they presented the specification, and you can see it, without any question why a diver would find this absolutely a perfect tool because of the primary consideration beyond the water resistance of visibility. Now, I don't do scuba, but scuba became a thing in the 50s, which is why the 50s was the decade of diving watches, whereas the 40s was the decade of military watches. You have to look at the larger picture, to uh, the societal changes, to see what moves the watches. When we get ahead in a couple decades, it was the yuppie era. Uh, now we're in a, a period of, uh, Uh, Well, this more disposable income, for example, and uh, tastes have spread. This is an example, a a perfect illustration of how scuba became uh, an important leisure sport. Again, the military crossing into the civilian side. And this watch, I believe, is probably now long past strongest family? Yes, most definitely. I read actually something interesting about
0: the, at the time when the, the obviously the French Navy were uh, adopting this, and also the Italian Navy mm. liked the look of it, and also the American Navy yes. liked it. But at the time, the Americans—and you'll correct me on this one—the Americans liked it, but they couldn't take it on because there was a kind of law in America to say mm. that it has to be kind of to protect the business yes. within America, it had to be made
1: in america has something to do with america well, th- this was a problem as you know with the when amiga was adopted by nasa they wanted an american-made watch and what you have to realize is that in the 50s and right until i think probably the end of the 60s america had a very strong watch making industry like like britain it lost that to the swiss and the japanese and for uh, for um military usage to have anything foreign it's, it, I'm an American, but I will admit that this is a, a, a type of xenophobia. I understand wanting to protect the local industries. But this was adopted, but with a different name, if you remember, correct. I think it was called Rayville, okay, which was Villaray turned around. Okay. And the American ones that haven't been destroyed after their usage because military uh, Material is not allowed or su- not supposed to get into civilian hands which is why it's such a miracle that so many collectors have military watches. But the uh, American versions of those are now worth a tidy sum. I'll bet. When th- they, were, they were sold for a period of
0: time. Um, going back to that American um, uh, uh, situation, I believe that there was a friend of the CEO of Blancpain who was an American ah, and he, okay. in order to try and overcome the situation of Getting something made within America. There was a a, a jewel company in Missouri, the Missouri Jewel Company, and the and basically what he did was they bought the Missouri Jewel Company, so that they were able to then allocate the jewels within the movements of the
1: watch. And lastly. uh the Conquest, the Longines Conquest, which was a part of a family of gorgeous dress watches, military values but civilian styling, mm. and this is a this is one of the more popular ranges. Uh, again, they're also incredibly affordable. Yes. for what you get, Longines heritage is second to none. This is an amazing, amazing steel watch with military credibility, but enough style to wear with a dinner jacket.
0: I put this one in on the trade, Ken, because. Um in 1954 this was the first line that um Jeans did where they had the concept of you know fam- different family of models yeah. so we're talking, we're starting to change the dynamic now of having a diff- you know a range of watches within yeah. within so the conquest which obviously is very successful today uh 1954 and on to the 1960s so ken Bit of color on this, tray, Absolutely, and so me it, gets, about it. it
1: gets back to this notion of the Swiss watch industry did pay attention to what was going on in the rest of the world. And we're talking about the decade of the Beatles, Carnaby Street, mini skirts, Karej dresses, uh, and then psychedelia. And these actually border on that period where, uh, shall we say, psychedelia ruled music and film. The doxa, isn't just a case of color, although it was the first watch to have an orange dial. I believe that the argument was about which color was had the best visibility for scuba diving. But you said there are also some other
0: firsts. Well, I believe that they're one of the first to have the helium escape valve in the in the doxa. Obviously, the sea dweller was was of that era as well. They've had a real renaissance of late mm. doxa, and they and they've, would you see our display of Doxers downstairs. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable! Some, there's some beautiful coloured dials in there. But yes, yeah, so that, that I think they I don't know who determined it exactly went down how the colors were exactly. Yeah, yeah but orange apparently is the last
1: color that you'd see mm. uh, in the depths of the well, ocean. Well, it's interesting because now, as you say, they've got. What, eight colors? I'll I'll have to check. check. And the rest? (laughs) But like Panerai, this was another beneficiary of a happy accident because I believe Clive Kessler, right, Kessler, not Kessler, wrote the Dirk Pitt novels and Dirk Pitt wore this by name. And the watch was always in production, but for many years it was only sold direct, I believe, until the new ownership, which brought us all these colors, revived this as an iconic piece. And it is. It's one of the most distinctive watches ever made. Yeah. It's been copied by so many others. I I couldn't even list all the brands that have come out with orange dials. But if you put this next to one of the originals, it's like all of the other pairings we've shown. This has defied time, and now it is one of the hottest watches going. Yeah. The other amazing thing about it is it's really reasonably priced. Mm, correct. Absolutely. We're, we're enjoying good times with Doxa, and it's, as they say,
0: He's got a very credible history. In Is there. Orange still the best seller? Yes, absolutely. Um, and the race. Oh, the ni- this, the, At the end of the
1: 1960s, the race was the, on. Tell one us of it, the hey. deadly rivalries. One of the big quests in the watch industry after automatics had been around for decades, but there were no automatic chronographs because chronographs are complicated, they're large. They're, how do you get it into the case? three completely separate organizations came up with them at the same time and it will rage as an argument until the end of watch history but zenith mm-hmm. seiko and a conglomeration of swiss brands and which i think included a uh, buren and uh, hamilton and hoyer well, i was going to say hoyer the difference was which used modules and which were integrated. And these two I believe were the integrated ones whereas the other used a module. Now the Zenith, I'm not going to fuel the fire by saying which came first because it depends on which market it was launched in, which watch show it was first displayed at. But showing something at uh, an exhibition is not the same as actually producing them for sale. So the El Primero, whatever, gets the uh, honor of being the first, is regarded by many watchmakers as the finest automatic chronograph of them all. And it was so good that for a couple of decades it powered Rolexes. Rolex does not buy in another movement unless it is sublime. And El Primero's have become collectible long before Zenith returned to producing El Primero's in a big way. And this, I believe, is the modern representation Correct. of the watch from 1969. Correct, which is doing very well indeed. So, yes, the Al
0: Primero movement, um, I'm, 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 I believe, is still the most decorated mm. uh, movement out there. And, and, and Zenith are very doing extremely well
1: at the moment for us. But um, this, this is an unusual piece. Yes. So this is now this. nicknamed the Pogue okay. because an astronaut wore this specific one. And you notice it has a yellow dial. I Uh believe it was also issued with a navy blue dial and a black dial. And what we believe I believe we could call a Pepsi Cola bezel. This is the Seiko entry into that first series of automatic watches. It's unusual because you can't wind it. You give it a shake to get it going. Price wise, it's maybe 10% of the cost of an El Primero. But these have become incredibly collectible because Seiko has an, is another brand that's gone undergone a miraculous revival. For example, today you can now buy Grand Seiko in the West where I believe for 40 years, maybe longer, they were only sold to yeah, Japanese customers. Correct. Seiko has had a renaissance that's just remarkable because people in the West are finally realizing that affordable watches can be hugely desirable, especially their prospects diving watches. This is a cult watch, Uh, the colors alone speak speak for it. And uh, if you have an historical tendency, owning a watch from 1969, whether it's with the Zenith, one of the ones from the conglomerate or from Seiko, is just a nice thing to have, like having an early uh, Reverso. But Seiko, uh, I have to say, I admire that brand so much that I now have at least 12 of their pieces covering probably 50 years, oh, Good chef. and uh, if anyone says to me they want a serious manufacturer watch mm-hmm. and they don't have a ton of money, you can never go wrong with one of the Seikos.
0: We're now into the 1970s, um, actually my favorite music era is the 70s, but we're talking about watches here today, yeah, but yeah. Uh, take it away, Ken. Well.
1: Here we have two examples of the growth in fashion watches. Uh, fashion watches had already always been around, but usually uh, it was the style was more important than what was inside the case. And I think of wonderful little watches that weren't very expensive, but would have been considered chic, like the uh, Borel had a watch called the cocktail watch. And it wasn't expensive, but it had concentric dials working in op- opposite directions and it made it look like a kaleidoscope, that kind of thing. By the 70s, people's tastes were changing, you had uh, feminism, uh, women's liberation had taken off, so fashion took off alongside of that. And in the watch world, they suddenly became aware of the fact that you could sell more expensive watches where style was almost as important as the movement. And well you you know that this is the Chopin Happy Diamonds was revolutionary because it was a serious watch Chopin is an incredibly important manufacturer yes
0: and which which are still very popular models today mm. the Happy Diamond Happy Sports ranges we also have a you know Piaget mm. on here which is famed for their extremely slim models uh, this model being the Altiplano but i mean
1: Around the '70s, that, would you say that also coming out with thin, thin, well, thin watches. Not just thin watches, but high-end well I suppose we call them high-end uh, watches that had superb mechanical movements uh, rather than going embracing quartz. But ultra ultra-thin, that battle did start around, around that time. There was a, I'm not sure if it was a previous decade, but there was a watch called the Delirium from Concord that was not much thicker than a, a credit card or even a business card, but uh, it became an issue because there's a point where thinness is too much. Nowadays, the thinnest watches you'll have that probably have reinforced cases, perhaps when we Think about things like models from Bulgari. Mm-hmm. They're ultra thin, but strong cases. This is an example of a watch that is, from, a Piaget are the masters of the thin watch. I have the distinction of being one of the few journalists that took apart an Altiplano movement and put it back together. Okay. And I'm not a watchmaker. But trust me, there ain't a lot of space to play around in it. No. So thin watches aren't just about getting the thinnest watch on the wrist so it doesn't tangle one's cuff and so it looks chic. They really are a challenge to watchmakers. You are taking away from them the real estate that allows them to make a mechanical device. But this this example is a a perfect instance of where you've got a watch that you don't have to apologize. This is not a $5 or 5 euro quartz movement in a gold case. On every level, this is serious. And at the same time, it is seriously luxurious. Another... um uh,
0: obviously, 1970s, everybody who'd be watching this would be thinking, when are they gonna mention the obvious? So obviously, Genta came to the fore in absolutely. the 70s. Absolutely, absolutely. 72, with the Royal Oak. Yep.
1: Um, Which already- again, is about applying a really luxurious air to something, in that case, is a tool watch. Here it's a dress watch with a thin movement. The arrival of the Royal Oak, changed everything. It took a few years for it to hit. The impact it has today is, is just, it would have been unforeseen 50 years ago. But it inspired, as you know, the Nautilus. And Ajanta's an interesting guy because even before that, he had done amazing work for uh, IWC, for example. And here was a guy who knew how to add a suave look to a tool watch. So when the Royal Oak came out, the confusion that it followed is it a diving watch is it a sport watch is it a watch just for golfers or because it says Audemars Piguet on the dial is it haute lingerie is it a high-end watch and i know that you uh, you have a special
0: boutique for it correct you know broadgate in, in in the city we have um, we have the uh we have the Audemars Piguet brand there
1: and the clientele for these well, the
0: demand is off the scale for, for, for AP like never before. So it's, um, you know, it, it has grown substantially in the same way that the Nautilus. I mean, obviously, when they mm. first came out, you know you, you know, you used to see them in the windows, mm. um, but obviously now um, it's it, even more difficult. And another model which from the era as well, I think we need to mention would be uh,
1: the GP L'Oreato. Mm. Yes. And it's interesting that I I don't believe it appeared in the film, but I believe it was named after the movie with Dustin Hoffman, The Graduate, because Laureato is Italian. Okay. I don't recall seeing him wearing one in the film. I know he drove an Alfa Romeo in the film. But it's it's a really controversial watch because hobbyists, enthusiasts, trolls, for lack of a better term, Uh, They want to to pit the AP against the Nautilus and anything else is considered copycat, but it's not the case. Uh, Girard Perrigo, people do not realize what history that brand has and how self-contained it is. Girard Perrigo isn't as well known or doesn't roll off the tongue as quickly as a bunch of enthusiasts would mention AP or Patek. I visited GP 25 years ago And there wasn't a single thing that they didn't make. And the irony is they were supplying parts, especially tourbillons, to other brands. And I'd like to see the Laureato attain the level of desirability that it absolutely deserves on every level, especially credibility. This is not a copycat watch. But it's hard to explain this to people. If they don't want to look beyond the advertising or beyond what they're told by maybe a salesperson, no offense. There really is a depth to all of this. And once you look into it, you realize that things that, like Longines, for example, which we looked at earlier, is one of the great brands. It has a history second to none. The trouble is we go through fashion. So right now, if you were talking vintage, it's owned, the top end is owned by Patek and Rolex. And it's, I, it might get down to laws of supply and demand, but there are 600 manufacturers in Switzerland, and we don't need 600, but most of them do have something to say. And the Laureato categorically deserves to be in the same company as the AP, mm-hmm. the Nautilus, and what we get to in the next decade, I believe, which you, is you'd, the,
0: be, you'd be pleased to know that our uh, Laureato has made a massive comeback oh, thank in goodness. the industry. Thank goodness. Aston Martin, Laureato, Gerard Perigo, it's extremely hard to get hold of. So we're enjoying, um, a lot of demand on that
1: brand. Um, all Fantastic. the best people were Gerard Perico. As I as noticed, yes. Listening. And I, I mentioned to that when I was a vintage watch dealer, the first piece I ever sold was a 1950s Gyromatic from uh, GP and it went for $50 and I wish I still had it. Yeah, I have. <laughs> We've all got those stories, eh? Now we come to a decade that's important to you, Dave, which is the 1980s. Yes. Because I believe this is around the time you started in our business. It is indeed, Ken. And I believe there's a watch sitting right there that means an awful lot to you. There are
0: a couple, actually. Okay. Um, back in the 1980s, when I first started in this industry in 1983, um, my football team had just won the championship in 1981 and the European in 1982. Aston Villa, of oh, course. Right. Um, founders of the Football League. But we're here to talk about watches today. Um, so, um, yes, with regards to um, the watches of that era, I remember starting off and there was a watch brand called Tag Heuer, who um, back in, from 1985 onwards, the te- technique avant garde. Joined up with the Hoya brand, and they uh, introduced some watches called the Formula One, Mm -hmm. which had um, some bright colours. They'd had the um, metal case with a plastic, uh, with with, with the with the with the orange strap, with the blue strap, with the green strap, the fluorescent dials, um, and the Formula One. At that time, was very much the watch, and it was also affordable. I seem to recall it was. I mean, I mean, it was probably about sixty-five or eighty-five pounds mm. back then. It's still today. If any of my pals are saying to me, "My son's eighteen years old, mm. or what have you," what do you recommend? I always look at a Formula One, because I think that's a great entry into the world of watchmaking. Water resistance, two hundred meters, sapphire crystal glass rubber strap, which means they can go swing, give it a bash, don't worry about it. So um, that, that, that era, um, you know, uh, the Tag Heuer for me, the 80s was very much the Tag Heuer era um, when I was growing up uh, in this industry.
1: Well, the other thing it gave people was heritage, because as we were speaking about the 60s with the arrival of the automatic chronograph, Heuer was part of that. And every collector will tell you right now the most desirable vintage among the most desirable vintage watches are all of those Hoyers named after racecourses. Uh, Silverstone, Silverston, for example, yes, the Monaco and of course. And this gave them a taste. But I see here, and this is a, this is illustrative of the way the public's knowledge, taste, or preferences in watches have changed. In the fifties, sixties, seventies, people have one watch. If they had a job-related watch, like if they were divers, they bought a a, 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 a Submariner or a Doxa. But by this time, watches are starting to become part of one's uh, personality, and it was also aspirational. But I see now, because 30, 40 years on, uh, Tag Heuer has moved this up the scale in terms of quality, price, so this is no longer a budget, entry-level watch that you would buy with pocket money. It's now joined the serious Correct. Tag Heuer yes. ranges. Yes. So, yes, and
0: it has most definitely, and it's, it's extremely well for us. It's, it's a fantastic brand. Another brand which is doing particularly well is Hublot. Um, and I remember when they first came out in the early 80s, um, they were the first brand to bring out rubber straps. That's right. I remember actually the straps used to smell of vanilla back <laughs> back when they first. I think it was and Carlo Crocco um, launched the brand which he uh, he wanted to create the the porthole um, right. design of uh, is is the Hublot French for porthole? I'm not sure. I'm
1: not sure. Have but to have that did, but the porthole was definitely his his inspiration. Yeah.
0: it took him three years to design the actual strap. The mm, rubber strap, mm. and then they launched it in Basel in 1980. I wonder why he chose vanilla, though. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But he um, he launched it in Basel in 1980. He didn't take an order um, oh. uh, in in Basel, but then later on that year, it, it it came on, and and I think they took two million dollars worth of orders on Cuba. But I remember at the time, even even the master catalog had a rubber. Coated mm, front mm. as well, and it was quite, um, you know, very different. Fast forward to um, fast forward now, you see, you know, the England manager will be, you know, be wearing a Hublot. watch. Mm. it's synonymous with sport, Hublot are very much uh, pioneers of um, um, supporting um, the England football team, various different football teams. Depeche mode, mm. um, you know, that's right, the Hublot, um, yeah, Paris Saint Germain, their Hublot, um. But it's, it's interesting
1: because, because today, today, Ublow's strength is the Big Bang. Yes. Whereas this, which is a current model, and I noticed it's the classic fusion. This looks like the original ublo's but if you put it next to one, yes. it would absolutely dwarf it. Yes. I remember they were, relatively tiny compared they were, to this. Yes, you're right. And that's the
0: reason why I've pulled out a classic fusion because it takes me back to those early 1980s. And it shows
1: how the evolution, again, we've been talking about this in every decade, size has gone up. Mercifully, you mentioned to me earlier that people are leveling off and this craziness like 48 mil, that's that's no longer the case. This is what, 44? Yes, correct. And. Again, for someone with small wrists, that might be a bit oversized, but equally, the original looks as tiny as that Calatrava we spoke about earlier. And Hublot is one of the biggest success stories in Mm. in watch history. Uh, It's it's just phenomenal. Uh, The Big Bang, I believe, is one of the few watches that came out after the 70s that joins the Royal Oak the Nautilus, and the Laureato in competing in that sector yes. of luxury sport watches. So I would say that's they're the four. Yeah. So out
0: of the 1980s and into the 1990s, um, before we get to what's on the tray, Ken, a yeah. um, few of the brands which come to mind in the
1: 1990s for you would be? Well, from both ends, brand new and revived, you've got Blancpain and Frank Muller, which and actually a third brand, Ulysse Nardin, in the first half of the 1990s with a watch revival starting its trajectory, it wasn't just Rolex and Patek and Audemars and Vacheron, the established brands. For some reason, there was a real craving for these these new brands, although, for example, Blancpain and uh, the others that were revived were ancient brands, Panerai. What happened was you had a whole generation of people with disposable income. I think the term was city boys, for example, getting bonuses and watches became a thing. And 30 years on, it's hard for people to realize that the two hottest watch, or the three hottest watches in the early 90s included the absolutely classic blanc pain which you remember, white dial, small thin gold watch, the frank Muller Casablanca with the Salmon Pink dial, and Salmon Pink is very much back in vogue. Mm-hmm. And the third one was the Ulysse Nardin Marine Chronometer. Yep,
0: 1846.
1: And again, Ulysse Nardin had been been there all along, but like Girard Perrigo, it wasn't one of the brands, I don't want to say A-list, it just wasn't one of the brands that was in everyone's consciousness, like Rolex, Cartier, and Patek, and Cartier is an important one to mention because throughout this entire period, the periods we've been talking about, every single decade, Cartier has been there. Mm. And that is a particularly important example because the Tank was one of the earliest wristwatches along with the, uh, the Santos. And this is an exquisite, exquisite interpretation of what even then was already an 80, 80-year-old plus
0: design. Yes, I mean the reason why I've brought out the Tank Francaise here, Ken, is because obviously the Tank came about in 1917 and once again, if you had to list the top five most significant watches of Of all time, then the Tank would be in Mm. there, absolutely. The Tank Francaise, which was launched in 1996, I remember going over to Switzerland for Mm. the launch and Is that
1: S I H? Correct. Yeah.
0: Yes, and it was um, it was an in, you know it was a very successful launch to the point that we would go to subsequent Basel fairs and S I H H fairs, and the immediate success of this model meant that we would kind of benchmark other brands when they launched a ladies' mm. model. We'd say how would that compare mm. to the Tank Francaise? So, for me, when I think of the nineties. Uh, I think of the success of this mm. this particular model. Oh, and there
1: have been plenty of brands that have tried to do lookalikes.
0: For sure, for sure, and they will continue to do so. Um, this, this, for wow. me, if in in my opinion, it's probably the most significant uh, introduction in my lifetime of um, wow, the coaxial by George Daniel. Mm. Which was uh, which was launched many years before the nineteen nineties, but it actually came out in the nineteen nineties, nineteen ninety nine. George had a
1: problem convincing the Swiss that it was an advance. Tell us about it. Well, this actually brings pangs of what we call seller's remorse because I had one of the first series Amiga uh, coaxials. George is still regarded as the greatest watchmaker of the 20th century or the post greatest post breguet watchmaker of all time. And the coaxial movement was a serious advance. Most, advanced, most watchmaking, in fact, involves technologies or concepts that are hundreds of years old. And the primary changes over the centuries have been materials and lubricants more modern, for now I think you might recommend instead of every two years, you can get away with five years for a watch. But George was after a wiser way of making an escapement and part of it was to remove the curse of all watches which is lubrication. And the coaxial, he ultimately convinced Nicholas Hayek Sr. at Omega to adopt it and i believe it now powers all of me absolutely i foolishly sold mine to buy another watch off my bucket list which happens to be a breguet but you do these things as a collector we're never happy and i'm regretting it deeply because it was a watch with a, a closer connection to george he actually signed the the owner's wow. certificates in, it. Okay. but that's that's well yeah, yeah. watches under the bridge. Yeah, this is uh, probably a better watch because I re- seem to recall that the first generation
0: we did have some issues. Tell us about the, it.
1: We did have some issues with some other watches mm. coming
0: back in the From early the, days the ones that came out in '99. Correct. Yes. Yes. But obviously since then um, it's been absolutely mm-hmm. perfect, marvelous, no issue whatsoever. But I'd say for me, yeah, the coaxial. When we were actually putting this together, I was mm. thinking. There's one watch. There's
1: one era. Absolutely, mm-hmm. that, uh, what I would love to say. I won't be around then, but I'd like to know 50 years from now what watch historians think would, will say about the coaxial. What's distracted people from it is the. It seems that the industry on mass has embraced silicon for parts in the movements, and I know watchmakers that are not that happy with it because if you need to replace a silicon part and you can't get that silicon part, you can't fashion it the way any serious watchmaker with a lathe and the right tools can handle uh, machining parts from precious metals or even steel Uh, the only thing that's a real problem for people is if a spring goes Uh, the silicon i understand the need for innovation but this isn't just innovation for the sake of it it really was an advance and it, it probably will be what george is remembered for alongside Reviving our knowledge of a lot of things in the past, especially Breguet, which I believe was super close to his heart.
0: Mm. Okay, out of the nineteen nineties and into the new millennium, um, talk to me about some of the brands we've got. It we've got a Ulysse Nardan on the tray, Ken, and we've also got a Bremont. But just and we'll come back to these. Yeah. But what are some other brands which 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 come to mind of that era of the new
1: millennium onwards? For me, the first decade of the new millennium was the, not a plateau, we'll call it the ascent in credibility of what I call the auteur brands. These are the individuals who set up their companies. Uh, they, they would have been watchmakers, they would have started out as really young watchmakers around the time of the quartz crisis in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So you have master watchmakers who now are barely, are, they're barely in their 60s. You had people like Alain Silberstein, who is coming back, mm-hmm. who came out with the most outrageous looking watches. Mm-hmm. They looked little pieces of art. F.P. Jorn, who adored the work and was inspired by Breguet. You have De Betune, which is uh, Denis Flagelet, and uh, David Zanetta, who formed that company, completely radical watches. Roger Dubuis, for example, who I believe was ExperTech, correct?
0: Yeah, was he ExperTech? Yes, I, I he think he was. He Muller as well. Didn't yeah,
1: but you had a lot of these watchmakers, and it and it spans about a twenty or thirty year uh, span f- uh, spread from the earliest ones, which would have been Daniel Roth, Frank Muller, and those guys. The younger ones would be uh, the people at Erwerk, Greubel Forsey. Uh, but there must be 50 maybe more of extremely talented haute lingerie maestros they're phenomenal watchmakers they make incredibly exclusive pieces uh, you have different approaches for example mbnf brings in different designers yes different concepts and they're very rapidly uh, gaining the respect of brands that have 200 years behind them. So you have people like uh, with Laurent Ferrier, H. Moser. We could go on and on and on. And what's wonderful, the reason why they're enabled is because the interest in wristwatches has exploded. And the client base has gone beyond what it would have been in the 50s. In the 50s, the typical customer for a Vacheron would have been a very narrow slice of society. It would have been what we might call the aristocracy or the, the 1% or the 0.1%. Now, along with buying a fine motor car or a state-of-the-art sound system or having amazing holidays, people want statement watches. And there is no greater statement than a watch that's basically an auteur product that it oozes the personality. You see an F.P. Journe, you know what you're looking at. You see a Roger Dubuis, you see any of these pieces and you know that they're not mass market, you know that they're exclusive and you know that they're adventurous. And here we have a perfect example of adventurous. We do. Watchmaker. I mean,
0: these are both brands that we have here in the um, in, in, in the showroom here at Watches Switzerland. Actually going back yeah. to what you were just mentioning, we also have um, MBNF uh, we, we're the sole agents of MBF oh. in the UK oh, okay we've just taken on the brand max himself was here right um, about two weeks ago uh, explaining how his brand has exploded mm-hmm. um, in very much the same way that you, you, you just mentioned there and then, so... Uh, but here with The
1: Freak, we have we, we have uh, a company that's been around, that has history, that's yes. challenging the adventurous guys. Correct. So been around since 1846,
0: I believe. But I remember in 2001, I think it was, when we went to the Ball Fair and, and they launched The Freak, mm. um, and it was Rolf Schneider. I remember yes, him, God rest, rest his soul, yeah. yeah. And he had, all of a sudden, we had this this watch, didn't have a dial, yeah. didn't have the button and stem. It had the movement actually built onto the, the you know, the, the base plate with the escapements. Uh, and also it introduced silicon as mm. well to, mm. the, to the world of uh, watchmaking. And the freak really was something, wow, okay. We, it, it took us by surprise and in true yilis um um, you know, nautical fashion. It had the bright blue dial. But since then, they've done a range of beautiful freak models, and we've got this example here, which we've got in the showroom today. They've they've also been experimenting with the case materials mm. as well. So you can see we've got the carbon fiber casing here. Very nice. So who does those appeal to? Is it only hardcore watch collectors and enthusiasts? Originally, yes, but for the very reason that you've been talking about people becoming more educated in more of the brands now they've brought down the price points on this brand so this is like twenty-three thousand pounds for the freak it was around about hundred thousand. Oh, pounds when the original series when it first came so, out yeah. so they've really they've they've really gone to work on looking at the audience so who is the customer a lot of people, um, mm. you know,
1: across different age groups are, are coming in, so they're, they're quite young. But, but the reason they could get away with that, the reason they were, could succeed with that is, and again, it's, I wish people studied history more. People forget that near, uh, some, was it, nearly 40 years ago, Elise Nadine brought out the Trilogy of Time, yes. which are three of the most complicated watches ever produced. They're still around, and there's still, no one else has matched them. They have functions that no other watch company has dared to attempt. Mm. And this, for those of us who knew Ulysse Nardin, this wasn't a surprise in terms of their capabilities. It was absolutely Ulysse Nardin right down the line, and and Rolf, of course. Yes,
0: yes, and the genius. Well, this uh, is the other extreme
1: because we're going to classicism here.
0: We are, Um, and uh, I mean, this is an ode to the, uh, getting back in the English watchmaking uh, back onto the forefront again. We have uh, Bremont, Nick, and Giles English, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think it was 2002. um, That's when they started talking about it. Yeah, Yeah. and I believe it was 2007 when they first Yeah, The first
1: watches emerged. But uh, tell us about Braemont's. Well, it's interesting because back in 2003, I got this call from a colleague of ours, Lara Mangay, about what I speak with this chap who wants to start a watch company. And we met not far from here in a coffee shop a coffee shop in Piccadilly because it was before Bremont had a company, but he pulled out a case full of the most gorgeous pilots inspired chronographs. And I don't know if he knew that that's what I was partial to, but he had a dream. This was Nick before I met Giles. And one of the things he said even back then is that British watchmaking has been neglected now, here we are 20 years later and Bremont is a series company making many thousands of watches. They've had their controversies, which is always part of growing of the growing pains and growing up. But along the way, they've had some achievements uh, that, that are undeniable for a, a short spell. They had uh, a Peter Roberts, uh, master watchmaker working for them who came up with one of the finest bezel, rotating bezels I've ever seen. And in fact, it's on his own watch. It's got a, a, a purity, and you know this from, from rotating the bezels on Bremont watches. They've uh, also done a, an amazing job in coming out with specific models for squadrons, for example. And what beyond their own watches, what I think Bremont must be recognized for is inspiring other British watchmakers. Now, Roger Smith is a different story because Roger is in a unique position. He was George Daniels, who we spoke about before. He was George Daniels' only student, and he's at the most exclusive end. Uh, I think there's even like a three-year waiting list for one of his pieces. But along the way, we now have a litany of British brands. At every price point, we have Christopher Ward, we have Fears, we have Farer, and on and on and on. And this is a good thing because people forget that most of the swiss claimed developments were invented by british watchmakers they can call it the swiss whatever but it was english and that's going back to arnold and harris and, graham and graham so the swiss are good at borrowing <laughs> but bremont is is without question one of the key players in the revival of British watchmaking. One day, I'm hoping we will see movements made entirely in the UK. Completely self, again, leaving Roger out because that is a, a whole different type of watchmaking. But I would love to see actual movements made in their entirety in, in, in this country. Well, Roger. if in Henley yeah. or, or anywhere.
0: Yeah. What else can I say? But it's been an experience that uh, I've really enjoyed and I hope, hope our viewers at Watches of Switzerland will be able to enjoy that as well also. Um, so thank you very much it's indeed pleasure for, for me being thank with you. us today. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Calibre Podcast. We do hope you've enjoyed it. To watch this video in full or to discover more exciting horological content, subscribe to the Watches of Switzerland YouTube channel. To listen to more of our podcasts, please subscribe to The Calibre Podcast on Apple and Spotify.